0: Amen indeed. It's good to be with you all this morning. And no, that is not a typo in your very brief outline in your notes. We are going to be looking this morning at John chapters 1 through 17. Uh, Ben asks this week be dedicated to an overview of where we've been so far. I think that's helpful. You ever had like a TV show you enjoyed watching and it took a break in between seasons and at the beginning of like season two they're like previously on your favorite show and sort of recaps you got wrapped back up in the drama of what had taken place so that you don't miss you know the resolution to the cliffhanger they left you on at the end of season one and so this morning the goal is to briefly show us the previously in the gospel of John so that we don't miss all of the significance of what's about to unfold as we move forward in chapters 18 through the rest of the book. And I am excited to go through this with you all. I ask that you bear with me. Here's your note-taking strategy this morning. Do not try to write everything down. (laughs) If you want a much more detailed outline of most of what's going to be on the slides, you can actually go back and listen to the sermon that Ben preached when we first introduced the gospel of John and you can copy all those down but my goal this morning is as you listen I want us to feel a building crescendo of who our savior Jesus Christ is and that he is what he said he was and that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish and to see a unique way in which that can be a foundation for us in these uncertain times in which we live and so if you want to take notes, I would encourage you to jot down those things about Christ that stand out to you as that is something I need to hang on to this week and be reminded of this week as my my own faith is tested in whatever that looks like for you. But as we begin, I would ask you to join me with a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. Our Father, we do address you because you are in heaven, you are holy. And that is an unassailable reality. You have been so for eternity and you will be to the end of this age and to the eternal future that stretches out before us. And we desire this morning that we would hallow your name as it deserves, that we would set you apart in our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to as well sanctify Christ in our hearts. And we pray that you would give us the strength to do this through the spirit who dwells within us. We ask, as we look back at these 17 chapters that we've studied, that this would not merely be an intellectual exercise and a jaunt through an outline, but that it would be for us a return to the one we love most and who loved us best, and that it would bolster our faith to live for him this week, whether that is preparing to head to distant shores in Slovakia or whether that's right here in our valley. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're looking at all of the 17 chapters we've looked at so far in the Gospel of John. And I want to just start by reminding us what a unique and fascinating gospel account this is among the four different gospel accounts that the Holy Spirit inspired for us and gave us. It is written uniquely by a member of Jesus' inner circle, if you'll recall. Jesus had this group of followers that traveled with him, and then he had the 70 disciples that he sent out, and there were the 12 who specifically were underneath his discipleship, and within them there were the three that were, if you will, Jesus' closest friends and confidants, Peter, James, and John. And this is the only gospel account we have written directly by One of those three, though Mark was closely associated with Peter. And John has this intimate relationship with Jesus that was unique, even among those three. John is a fascinating personality. I've always been interested in him as an individual because he starts off as kind of this gruff sailor dude with the nickname, along with his brother of Sons of Thunder. Right, can you imagine nicknaming your some of you can imagine nicknaming your children Sons of Thunder and why you would do so. This is the kind of guy John was, but he was transformed by the life and by the love of Jesus into a tender shepherd of souls. His preferred nickname after spending time with Jesus was not Son of Thunder, but the disciple whom Jesus loved. The special relationship between John and Jesus is born. Out in the fact that it was to John that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother, Mary, as he died on the cross. John's gospel is not only written by a unique individual, but it's written from a unique perspective. Over 90% of the material in John's gospel is entirely unique just to that gospel, compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who overlap their accounts extensively in the things that they discuss And why is this? What is it that John is trying to do that leads him to give us such a unique insight? And I think that does tie directly to the purpose of the gospel that John gives us in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, where we read, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, and here's the purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Matthew sets out to prove that Jesus is the true King of Israel. Mark sets out to show Jesus as the suffering servant promised in the Old Testament. Luke gives a chronological case for Jesus as the Son of Man, the Savior. But John is proving a case that Jesus is God, and must be believed upon by all who hear his message. In fact, that word believe is used, as we've noted a number of times, almost a hundred times in these 21 chapters. And so this morning, whether you're hearing about Jesus for the first time or whether you've grown up in the church, the Gospel of John is like a cement truck pouring a foundation for the faith of all. And we can return to this book regularly to find strengthening, whether that is in trying to gain perspective in confusing days around the globe or in working through the trials of your personal circumstances and relationships this morning. How is John then going to accomplish this goal of showing us Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and evoking our faith? And he does it in a unique way, and I really enjoyed the way that John Calvin captured I think, what is the essence of John's method in a quote in his commentary on the Gospel of John. John Calvin notes that John's Gospel is unique from the other three Gospels in that, quote, the other three are more copious in their narrative of the life and death of Christ, but John dwells more largely on the doctrine by which the office of Christ, together with the power of his death and resurrection, is unfolded they, the other Gospels, do not indeed omit to mention that Christ came to bring salvation to the world, to atone for the sins of the world by the sacrifice of his death, and in short, to perform everything that was required from the Mediator, as John also devotes a portion of his work to historical details. But the doctrine, which points out to us the power and benefit of the coming of Christ, is far more clearly exhibited by him Than by the rest. And as all of them had the same object in view, to point out Christ, the three former exhibit his body, if we may be permitted to use the expression, but John exhibits his soul. On this account, I am accustomed to say, for whoever shall understand the power of Christ as it is here strikingly portrayed, will afterwards read with advantage what the others relate about the Redeemer who is manifested, he goes on to say this gospel is the key to opening the door to understanding all the rest. And there is a reason why it has often been, especially even in our own American tradition, the gospel of John that we encourage people to turn to first. To read John is to gain insight into the soul of Jesus, into his revelation of himself. And you can simply find this in no other gospel like you can In John. So, how did John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lay out his gospel to call us to believe in Jesus as God through the revelation of the soul of Jesus? Well, let's take a look at a roadmap of John and we'll walk through it together. I brought pictures. All the way back at the beginning of our series in John. Ben gave us a simple outline for the book, and that's what we will be using this morning on our way through. It begins with a prologue. A prologue which lays out the logos, the Word, as God and man. And we see that in John chapter 1, verses 1-18. through 18, John begins his gospel in one of the most beautiful and compelling passages in all of Scripture. Once again, he changes and diverges from the other three gospels here. Matthew lays out the legal genealogy of Jesus... Mark jumps right into the action of Jesus' life, beginning with his baptism. Luke gives us a detailed historical account of the birth of Jesus and his biological genealogy through Mary. John gives us this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And as he goes on to say a few verses later, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The king of Israel needs to prove his Davidic lineage through the Father. That's what Matthew did. The son of man needs to prove his prophesied lineage through the blood of his mother. That's what Luke did. God in the flesh requires going back just a little bit further than any historical almanac can trace. This is John's thesis. God became a man and revealed his glory and was rejected by the world and through his rejection and death became the savior of all. And now that you know, you must believe this. All right, John, we're hooked. Make your case. And so he does. Our second section is the son of God's testimony To the nation. In chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 12, verse 50, these passages trace the ministry of Jesus from the Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south and back and forth through Samaria in the middle. Jesus preaches and teaches to the nation and gives them proof of his authority to do so through signs and through wonders. And that then leads to... Oh, you actually have these little things here. (laughs) There you go. The Son of God's teaching to his followers follows on in chapters 13 1 through 1726. And if you'll note there, you can see on the screen the triumphal entry is marked out. And that means from the end of chapter 12 all the way to the end of chapter 20, you are looking at one week's span from a Sunday to a Sunday. All of that material is dedicated just to that period of time. We are now entering in chapter 13 into the upper room and spending our time listening in as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and then fills out through his teaching and prayer how the disciples will follow after him once he has returned to the Father. And this means that, as I said, all of this material, John is zooming in just to let us sit and listen in on one extended conversation. Chapters 13 to 16 all teaching and conversation. Chapter 17, as we just finished, is all prayer. And if you're noticing that this all does sound particularly familiar, it's because if you are looking at a roadmap of the gospel of John, you are here. That is where we left off. And that then is going to lead into the climax and culmination of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the pen of John. Our fourth section, The Son of God's Suffering and Glory, John 18, 1 to 20, 31. From now until the end of chapter 20, the Gospel of John will be focused exclusively on the betrayal, the arrest, the suffering, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Having laid out his case for the deity of Jesus, John is now ready to show us how the Messiah accomplished his work. And then finally, in the epilogue, we will see Jesus, Peter, and John highlighted most of that inner circle in verses 1 through 25 of chapter 21. It's another tender passage showing the restoration of the disciples to Jesus after his resurrection, particularly Peter. It's very personal and it's a very touching end, showing that the resurrected Lord of glory is still gracious and still eager to be a part of the lives of of those who follow him. The shepherd is still pursuing his sheep and encouraging them to shepherd other sheep as well. And in there is an encouragement for us all. Those are the bones of John's gospel. And hopefully a helpful reminder of how this book is stitched together. But I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning before communion looking back at the trail of breadcrumbs that John laid out for us in his gospel that proved his central thesis. Jesus is God, He is the Savior, and we should believe Him. If you remember, John gave us seven, or perhaps eight, or perhaps nine, or perhaps ten, depending on how you count, signs that Jesus performed, and seven I Am statements about Himself that help us to understand the soul of Jesus. And so let's quickly look back and remember together these wonderful moments that have brought us to the upper room and the very edge of the betrayal of the Savior. All the way back in chapter 2, we saw Jesus perform his first sign of turning water into wine. This is a fitting sign for the groom who has come to earth to seek his bride. And he makes his appearance at a wedding, showing that he is the Lord of the feast And he is the one who can turn water itself into wine. We then fast forward a little bit later in that chapter. The second sign by some counts is Jesus cleansing the temple because it is specifically identified as a sign in the text. Here you see the righteous one, Jesus Christ, purifying the house of God in his zeal. And in doing as well, he points out to the people that his body is, is the true temple, and that if you destroy it, he has the power to raise it up again in three days. A sign foreshadowing his greatest sign. Fast forwarding now to chapter 4, we see the third sign, Jesus healing an official's son. And it's in the context of Jesus rebuking a generation for just wanting to see tricks, for withholding belief until they have seen magic. But then he responds to the sincere faith of an official who believes in the word of Jesus alone and has his son healed from afar. His fourth sign takes place in chapter five, when Jesus goes to the pool at Bethesda and he sees that poor man, decades in his illness, unable to walk, unable to function in the life of society, cast off and despondent. And Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? And in so doing, he proves he is the Lord over disease, he is the Lord over infirmity, and, much to the upset nature of the spiritual leaders, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 6, the fifth sign of Jesus. He feeds a great multitude, at least 5,000, probably many more, when you include the women and the children. Jesus is the God who provides just as God always has for his people. And here he feeds a crowd of thousands with a miracle of creation. His sixth sign, walking on water, a more private sign that he performed in front of his own disciples and also one of the more amusing in that some of the Gospels note as Jesus was trucking along on the water, he had intended, it said, to pass them by. So when they first see Jesus, he wasn't like, hold on, I'm catching up. He was just heading for the opposite shore. See ya. That just had to have been a little bit hilarious in hindsight. But Jesus is the Lord of nature. He's the God of physics. The laws of the universe are his laws. The world conforms to his desires and occasionally scares the daylights out of his disciples in the process. His seventh sign... Now we're in chapter 9. Jesus heals a man born blind in a world where they look down upon him as, this must be only because of your sin. Jesus says, no, this is only so that the power and glory of God can be put on display. The one who is the light of the world brings sight to the blind. And what he does here physically, our Savior does spiritually as well. And to this we are all witnesses who call him Lord. His eighth sign in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus to life. The Lord of life is not limited by the grave. He not only can snatch people from death's doorstep, he can reach into death's chambers itself and draw men back by the power of his voice. And of course, there is the sign. There is the sealing testament to Jesus Christ. And that is his own resurrection from the dead in John chapter 20. The greatest and surest sign of all. Jesus himself cannot be contained by death. Because his sacrifice was perfect. And in that, death is conquered. And so he comes back. And then finally, the last sign given to us in the gospel of John is the miraculous catch of fish in John 21. And it may seem a little anticlimactic in light of the crescendo up to the resurrection of Christ. But I do think it is an encouraging miracle to end on as Jesus commissions his disciples. And as he restores Peter and tells him to go out and shepherd his sheep, and tells his disciples to go out and to be fishers of men, Jesus proves that he can bring about a bountiful harvest, even when it seems most barren, reminding his disciples of who he is and also giving them encouragement in the work that they will undertake themselves. And so we see this trail of breadcrumbs, this trail of signs littered throughout the gospel of John. But that wasn't all we saw if it was upon the foundation of the signs that we were to find the credibility for our belief in who he is, it was on his self-revealing declaration of who he was by his I am sayings that we found the heart of a savior to trust in. And so we can remind ourselves of the seven sayings of Christ that were also woven through the gospel of John. And for this, we begin back in chapter six, when Jesus taught us, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. And that is a saying and a statement which many others have attempted and nobody else has ever been able to follow through on. The satisfaction of our souls is found in Christ alone. In chapter 8, he would go on to tell this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. He is the light. This world is in darkness. And it does not matter how much the darkness mocks the light, rejects the light, or tries to conform the light to the ways of the darkness. He is the light. And those who wish to walk in the light will walk in his path alone. In chapter 10, Jesus told us twice, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The exclusivity of the Christ is also on display in his sayings. He is telling us both as encouragement and as caution that you cannot come into the Father's good pleasure unless you cross the threshold of his Son sent for us. In chapter 10 as well, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is no fickle savior. There are many fickle saviors in this world who are content to make great promises as long as it costs them nothing. It's easy to be the top of the pyramid scheme. But Jesus is the savior who dies for all and all the benefits flow from him. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says in chapter 11. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. I love that. It's not just I'm going to resurrect and be alive. I am the resurrection and the life. That's where it's found. It's not just in his message, not just from his power, but in his person. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you can see here we've transitioned into those teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples in the upper room. Those last revelations of himself that he wanted to leave with them before he would go to be the sacrifice for them. And to them he reminds them, it's all about me. It's all about me. You're struggling with a categorical, you might even say a continental shift in your thinking. You've been raised in the pattern of Judaism. You've been taught by your leaders that it's all about the law and it's all about obedience. It's all about you and it's not. It's all about me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you want to have a relationship with the Father, it will be through me. And if you want to have an impact in this world, it will be through me. Because I am the vine, Jesus says in chapter 15. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus reminds them where their source, not only for salvation, but for sustenance, for the sustaining of their lives, will be as his disciples, it will be in him. John knows what he's doing. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what a skillful presentation of the Messiah this is. Indeed, it's unique, but I think it's uniquely compelling as it lays out for us the signs and symbols by which the Messiah proved his authority and the disclosure of his soul by which we come to know and can trust in the heart of the one who calls us to the cross. And I would encourage you, if you have not read through the Gospel of John recently, to go back and to do so. It'll take a little bit of time, but it's not that bad. You could, you know, break it down. If you read one chapter today, and then two tomorrow, and then three the next day, and then four, and then go four, three, two, one, you'll just, you know, just kind of give yourself a little rhythm. You got this. You can get all caught up and where we're going to be. Or if you're that sort, you can say, I remember where we were. I want to know what's going to happen next. And you can read 18 through 21, and you'll be ready for that part. But go back. There's so much of who Christ is. We didn't even talk about the woman at the well or many of these other amazing revelations of the heart of Christ that are in John's gospel. But I hope these mountain peaks scattered throughout remind us who our Savior is. And returning then to John's thesis that he began with I. I think this helps us to focus on why we should, in fact, believe him. Why we should believe him. We should believe the one who has the power to create. He can bring into being that which is not. This is not something other people can do, this is not alchemy. This is the God of the universe causing to come into existence, whether it's water into wine or whether it's loaves and fishes to feed thousands. He's the Creator God. He has the power to heal, He can fix those things which we consider hopelessly undone. This is not the traveling charlatan who's able to improve somebody's back pain for a few minutes on stage. This is the God who can reach in and re-knit into healthy bone and sinew and tissue that which has been permanently damaged. And He can do that in your heart too. He has power over nature. Power over nature. We live in a world and in a culture that wants to look and say, this world of matter and of energy, this is what is ultimate. This is the source of all things. And Jesus says, oh, really? I make every atom dance to my will. The universe obeys me. Whether that's storms on the sea, clouds in the sky, the very air that we breathe serves him and him alone, and he proved it. And most powerfully and most ultimately, he has the power over death. He's the Lord of time, He's the Lord of eternity, and He alone has proven authority over the very mortality of Himself and those who follow Him. I want to follow a Savior who is not intimidated by the grave, and there is only one like that, and His name is Jesus. And John shows us this and says, Do you now believe? What more must you see? How much more convincing can it be? And for 2,000 plus years now, people have tried to pick away and undermine and try to set aside the miraculous signs and wonders of the gospel that we have just read, and they cannot. These are convincing signs. But not only should we believe him, we should trust him. We should trust Him for who He has revealed His soul to be to us. He satisfies as living bread. He illumines as the light of the world. He beckons to us as the only entrance into glory, the door, the way, the truth, and the life. He cares for us as a good shepherd who guards with His life and knows each sheep under His care. He conquers with the power of His resurrection a victory in which we can conquer too. And he sustains us as a vine sustains both branches and the fruit those branches produce. It is one thing to be forced to recognize that there is someone of such unconquerable power that we must deal with them. It's another thing to come to discover that they are good and they are kind and they are gracious, and that that is a safe place to entrust your soul. And John shows us that Jesus is both, and then commands us to believe. And that's where we will end this morning as you begin to prepare your elements for communion, and I invite the music team to begin coming up. As we get ready to partake of these symbols of faith in Jesus, as we take them into our hands, we would do very well to take this verse as a challenge to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who saves us from the guilt and punishment of sin? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? The one attested to by signs and wonders and by resurrection from the dead, a divine sacrifice and the full revelation of the glory of God. But let us not stop there then. Are you this morning believing such that you are as this verse calls us to, Enjoying and experiencing the life in his name. Let us eat and drink this morning with the conviction that our beliefs shall be evidenced in our living. Whether that's from Afghanistan to Argonne exit, from Slovakia to Spokane Valley, from broken politics to broken plumbing, from national mandates to Northwest marriages, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in that truth is the salvation and the satisfaction of our souls. Would you pray with me and then we will partake together. Father, thank you for the gift of the Gospel of John. Thank you for the unique perspective that it gives us on your Son. How unique you are as a God who desires to be known by his people, who is the revealing God that we are called to have a relationship with you. Help us never, because of the closeness with which you have with us, help us never to be, be tempted to trivialize the awesome, awesome majesty that you possess. Help us never to approach you without an appreciation of your glory. And yet, Lord, draw us near that we would approach you to come confidently as children before your throne in the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And even now, as we prepare to honor him and to remind ourselves of the covenant in his blood, we ask that you would accept from us this token, this symbol, as a true confession of our love for Christ, our faith in him, and our resolve to live the life that we have in him out here and before the world. And this we pray in his name. Amen.